couple of times here and there i feel like i'm i i i have this feeling like maybe i i don't belong here but i in the meantime i also think like i am strong enough to you know stand my ground and say that you know this is also my home you're listening to seeking refuge a podcast about the human story behind refugees your host for this week is tyler jackson this past summer Tyler interned at Carolina Refugee Resettlement Agency, a nonprofit organization contracted by the State Department to resettle refugees in and around the city of Charlotte, North Carolina. While there, he met and worked with Takur Mishra, a case manager at Carolina Refugee Resettlement Agency and a former refugee himself from Bhutan. The following is a conversation they had about his life leading from Bhutan to the United States. So, Takor, my first question for you um, deals with your life in Bhutan before you and your family um, were forced to leave. Um, do you remember um, that period of your life? And if so, can you tell me a little bit about it? Sure, Tyler. Um, I was born in, in a small country in Asia called Bhutan, which is sort of sandwiched between China and India. Um, I was seven, nearly eight years old when the government evicted me and my entire family from, from the kingdom. Um, I remember many things uh, that happened back then. I remember, you know, hoarding cattle um, in the pasture land. Um, I remember going to school. I remember playing in an open field back then. Uh, I remember helping my parents in whatever ways I could because you know we had a we had a whole uh, sort of land that we w- need to be taking care, cultivating uh, so many crops and other things for our livelihood. I still recall all of those things. So, when and why were you and your family uh, forced to flee Bhutan? Could you briefly just talk a little bit about that? Uh, as far as I can tell, at a time when we were evicted out of Bhutan in early 1990s, I had no idea that we would never be able to return back to where we were evicted from. Um, I had a feeling that maybe we were out for a trek, you know, because I was too young to understand what was going on in the country. Um but as time passed on, uh, well, we were staying as refugee in Nepal. My parents told me how we were evicted out of Bhutan. Um, and eventually, uh, through other narratives from people that I have met in the refugee camp and from the readings that I, I had done extensively, uh, to me, I have concluded that it, uh, we were part of uh, an ethnic cleansing policy in Bhutan, which was politically motivated. Uh, a Buddhist ruling elites trying to uh, clamp down restrictions uh, culturally, religiously, on another ethnic group called Hindus, which were mostly Nepali-speaking people, including my family. Um, so basically, you know, I was part of an ethnic cleansing policy that the Bhutan government carried out in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Can you talk a little, um, can you explain how big was your family um, at the time? Did you have any siblings, any brothers and sisters? 
Um, I am I am the youngest son. Um, I have three sisters, and then including me, it's like five brothers. So eight siblings, uh, including myself, parents. Uh, some of my siblings were married, and they had kids as well. So it was a a, a huge extended family, and all of us were living together. Do you um do you remember how you felt when you and your family um, were forced to leave? Bhutan. I I don't I I don't recall feeling too much bad because nobody in my family the elders were not telling me the truth. Maybe they didn't do so because I was too young. Maybe they didn't want to burden my mind, you know. Um, so I actually had no idea that we were leaving uh, the place we were born sort of permanently. Now that it's been thirty years. I have never been able to go back. So I didn't have all the ideas as to why we were being evicted. And that's that's right. You also explained that um, you didn't know that you would never be returning um, when you and your family left um, Bhutan. Um, so moving on to your journey after Bhutan, can you describe where your family headed to after leaving Bhutan and how long that journey took? What was it like? I, I still carry some vivid memories of, of my journey all the way from Bhutan to a refugee camp in Nepal. Uh, it took about three days for me and others in the family to, to take a barefoot walk all the way from one of the remotest parts of Bhutan uh, to get to uh, India where I think my parents initially thought that they would be taking refuge because India shares immediate border with Bhutan, but not Nepal, where we later ended up living in a refugee camp. But then as soon we got into India, we were loaded into big trucks um, by the local authorities, and then we were basically dumped um, in, in Nepal where then we were registered as refugees by the UN's refugee agency called the UNHCR, where it became my home. Wow. Um, and what was your life like in Nepal, in the refugee camp? Can you describe that a little bit? Sure. Um, life in refugee camp uh, basically means like you have nothing there. Uh, like for instance, my 10 member family, my parents, some of my siblings, their kids, myself, we were 10 in the family. Um, so we were sharing about 200 square feet of space. Um, the, the tent like hot um, is made up of bamboo plastic and thatch. Uh, you have no privacy there, no security, no um, nothing if you cough inside your heart. Uh, at least about 100 people will hear you cough. Um, there is no indoor running water. Uh, there was a scarcity of food all the time. There was no decent medical treatment. Um, sadly, my two-year-old niece uh, lost a battle with what elsewhere would have been considered a treatable pneumonia because we were not able to afford a doctor. I know she was just one among, among several hundred um, you know, children and other elderly folks who died 
at least initially during the settlement of the refugee camp. Um, classes used to be uh, taught at least at the initial phase of the refugee camps on an open fields. Like shadows of large trees became my classrooms uh, and classrooms used to be canceled only when it rained. So neither the sun nor the scorching, you know, the, the, the heat or the cold stopped me and others from pursuing our education. Uh, there used to be open sewers in the refugee camp. Um, um, each day passed on with, with you know, with, with you losing all the hopes because you are like, what happens tomorrow? What happens next week? Um, but then the hope that one day we would we would be able to return back to Bhutan was never lost. And how long were you living in the Nepalese refugee camp? I was there for close to 20 years. Um, but for, for a few years, I mean, I was able to snuck out of the refugee camp um, sort of illegally to pursue my higher education. Otherwise, I was confined to a refugee camp for close to 20 years, including all of my family members and other tens and thousands of people. So when and when did you and or your family decide to be resettled in a new country? So the resettlement process actually started sometimes in um, in early 2007 uh, when the assistant secretary of the homeland uh, went all the way to the refugee camp in Nepal and declared that she was uh, interested, her department including the U.S. government was interested in resettling um, at least 60,000 refugees from the refugee camp in Nepal. Uh, so as soon this news had gotten a space locally, you know, I immediately declared my interest. I thought like that was the only way out to get 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 out of the uh, place that was like like a hell. You know, you don't have anything in there in the refugee camp. So, and chances of being re being repatriated back home was almost slim to none because we had waited so long there that we, I had a feeling that we would never be able to get back to Bhutan. Uh, so I immediately declared my interest sometimes in 2007, and the process took about two years for me to be done there, uh, including layers and layers of screenings, interviews, um, security clearances uh, by several stakeholders, including the Department of Homeland Security, the international organization for migration that usually facilitates the screening of the health and then the travel, including the government of Nepal and, and the UN's refugee agencies. So um, with a rigorous vetting process for two years, I was finally able uh, to be resettled um, in the Bronx in New York City in 2009. Did you have an ability to choose which country you'd be resettled in? So this is this is how resettlement actually works. Uh, initially, I had to declare my interest for resettlement to the UN's refugee agency. I would have no choice but just to declare my interest without picking any of the countries. And then the UNHCR, which is the UN's refugee agency, 
will kind of basically determine on my behalf, looking all my background as to where I would be best fitted. So for me, I never said I would like to be resettled in the United States, let alone being in New York City was 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 not my choice, you know. But it was a choice uh, deliberately made by all of the stakeholders involved, including the, the U.S. government. When you initially arrived in the United States, what items did you bring with you? Uh, as far as I could recall, the only thing I had was uh, a, a bag that had in it some used clothes given by some of my elder siblings. Um, and then I made sure that I carry with me my academic credentials because I always felt like, you know, if, if things would go the way that I wanted, I had a feeling that I would I would continue to pursue my higher education even after resettlement. So it was just a bag, uh, some used clothes, including academic credentials, and then and then a hope that one day I would I would be better off by being resettled. That was basically it. Did your family come with you initially? Uh, no, I was the first from the family being resettled. I was I came I came to the United States alone. And how old were you at the time? I guess I was 22, 23 maybe. Before you came to the United States, you must have had some expectations about what life would be like when you were resettled. Um, and I'm wondering, how did those expectations compare to the reality that you experienced when you, when you were first arrived? I mean, my expectations were were barely met because you know you could imagine living in a in a refugee camp confined there for close to 20 years and then all of a sudden moving into one of the one of the world's biggest cities uh, which is the new york city you know it, it didn't have any kind of mats in between um, but then i never lost what i call as the hope that you know one day things would be getting better uh, because at least when I was initially resettled there, I had enough food on my table. I had a roof to protect me over my head. You know, uh, I had freedom. And these were some of the most important things that I lacked ever in my life. Uh, and I think that kept me motivated, you know. So each time when you would return home from work or whatever it is, at least you got food on the table, enough, enough to eat, enough to, you know, sleep. Which, which, is, which is what we lacked back home. And you had no fear, uh, you know, of being persecuted by your own government. You had no any fear with, with, with anything as long as you're obeying the law. You know, you have more freedom to exercise. That's what we, I lacked back in the refugee camp, including in my own birthplace, Bhutan. So I think that kind of continuously motivated me to, 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 to hope for better. I think you touched on this a little bit with your answer just now, but when you arrived in the U.S., what sort of mindset did you have? What long-term goals, plans for the future? Uh, one of the goals, my initial goals was to breathe fresh air of freedom, which I had lacked my, my entire life, you know. 
And well, in the refugee camp, I I was also involved as an advocate for freedom of speech and expression, and to be in one of the world's, you know, a country that has the freedom of speech and expression to its fullest extent, uh, was sort of a dream come true. I wanted to get a feel of that, you know. And my other goal goal was to get established. Um, and accumulate myself into the mainstream American society as quickly as possible. And I believe I was able to do that. You know, uh, I still struggle with, with, with so many things, but then I felt like working hard, you know, trying to be uh, more competitive, trying to be um, part of the mainstream American society was, was my another, another goal. And I think I made it early on. And so along those same lines, what were some of the biggest challenges involved in integrating into American society and culture? Uh, some of the challenges was that I, I found out fairly early on that there are a lot of subcultures, not just, not just culture, you know. There are a lot of subcultures that I, I still struggle to understand here in the mainstream society. And initially, language was one. Although I came here with some English, both writing and then speaking, um, I always struggled with the language part. Um, the other struggle was being in New York City. It was heck of a deal to 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 be familiarizing myself with using the subways. You know, now tell me how many times I didn't get lost. How many times you know I was supposed to get to somewhere else on a specific time, but I I. I kept getting lost, you know. It was a it was a huge challenge because I've never seen uh, a train in my life except in in few movies here and there. So being all of a sudden in places like New York City was was really challenging. Um, the other challenges was that everyone who comes here comes with some sort of a mentality or expectation that they would have some kind of job that suits their you know, past experiences or their academic background, which was extremely challenging for me because I was doing a whole lot of different things than what I used to do back in the refugee camp. Um, so, but then again, as I as I said earlier, you know, I never lost a hope and I kept thinking like, maybe, you know, I should take anything that comes my way initially and things would be getting better one day. And so with that, talking about that expectation that the job that you had in Nepal uh, would be similar to the one that you would have when you arrived in the United States. What sort of jobs or what sort of career did you have in the Nepalese refugee camp? And when you arrived in the United States, what was your initial job or jobs? Uh, well, in the refugee camp in Nepal, you know, I, I had snuck out of the refugee camp for a couple of years to pursue my bachelor's degree from the capital city of Nepal, Kathmandu. Um, I had a bachelor's degree in journalism and mass communication and uh, after I had started my college, uh, I was hired by a local uh, radio station where I worked as, as, a, as, as, a, as a program host. And then also I was working on their online uh, portal as a, as a news editor. I didn't expect that I'd be able to do that as soon as I came to this country, you know. Uh, but then the way that 
that I had experienced uh, things in, in, in journalism, in reporting, um, uh, was I think what kept me having my expectation more higher after I was being resettled here. Uh, and as you asked, my initial job was to work for a warehouse company where, where they receive orders online. Uh, it's, I believe it's a gift shop online, you know. So they take orders online. And then whatever people order, you have to find the items from the aisle, pack it, and then ship it, ship it in an appropriate way. So it's basically working in the warehouse. My second job in New York City as well was also working in, in a warehouse. What were one of the uh, biggest cultural differences that you saw uh, between Bhutanese slash Nepalese uh, culture and American culture? I had heard and read uh, a little bit here and there about the United States being an individualistic society. And early on, I, I found out what it actually meant because I come from what we call it as a collective culture. It's, it's sort of looking for each other in a way that you care for others as much as you care for yourself. But then here, I found it just the opposite because um, you know, people care for themselves more than anything else. Uh, it's always, you know, uh, being more competitive, being uh, looking out for things for just yourself, you know, uh, not living in in a in a in a family. Uh, like our culture says that we could live like as an extended family. You know, I could live with my parents, and even if it's with some of my siblings, and and we do that even today here. So if my parents someday were to move with me, I, I have no problem, you know. Or if I have to move with my parents, it's not a big deal here. I mean, even here in our culture, but it's just the opposite in, in this culture, which, which still today I find hard to believe, you know. But I get the point that when, when, when people become more independent on their own, I mean, it, it, it creates more opportunity. They get to learn more about life. But in the meantime, I think, you know, there's a huge shift uh, between being individualistic and then being from a, a collective culture. That's what, what was more shocking to me back then and then even still today, I, I feel the same way. Talking about your experience as an immigrant to the U.S., how have you balanced integrating yourself and your family into American culture while still maintaining a connection to your Nepalese and Bhutanese culture? Well, that's sort of an interesting question. Uh, now that I have uh, a nearly four-year-old daughter, um, I keep asking these questions more than ever before uh, because I have this deep feeling like, how should I raise my daughter in a way that she becomes competent and part of the mainstream American society. And in the meantime, you know, keep some of the cultures and traditions and, and religion that we have brought from back home. And personally, I mean, I have um, gotten rid of some of the superstition belief that we had carried for years, you know, because I come also from a sort of a, a, an orthodox, orthodox family. Uh, 
where you know you believe too many things that are not scientifically valid or whatever it is. Like I'll give you an example. If you are driving in my culture, it says, if you are driving, if you see a cat crossing the road, then you stop. You 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 don't you, you shouldn't drive, you know, forward, because it indicates that you will meet a severe accident. Now, have I driven? <coughs> Excuse me. Now, has I, I, have I seen a cat crossing the road? Yes, I have. Did I stop my car? No, because I don't believe on that. You know. So in these nearly 10 years of my stay here in the United States, I have gotten rid of so many superstitions and belief from my culture. But then I still carry with me some of the things that makes absolute sense to me, like the language part, like some of the culture of living, you know, being, uh, being from a collective family. I still believe on that. Uh, whereas I think I, will, I, I am more interested in raising my way uh, raising my daughter in a way that she still becomes, you know, part of our culture, but then is also more comfortable enough to be part of the mainstream American society. You touched on this a little bit, but when you first arrived, could you explain the steps that you took to go through the resettlement process, such as, you know, finding a job, getting a bank account? Uh, driver's license, social security, things of that nature? Sure. Um, so in New York City, I was resettled by an organization called International Rescue Committee. Um, I was picked up by a cab driver from Newark International Airport in New Jersey, and he dropped me uh, to my apartment all the way in, in the Bronx in New York City where uh, my case manager from the resettlement agency was waiting there. Um, I was given some basic orientations as to as to what I should be doing, what life in the U.S. would look like. Uh, early on, I was told that, you know, whatever expectations that I had back home may not be met immediately. Uh, I was encouraged not, not to lose any kind of hope. Um, then in in about four weeks time after my arrival, the resettlement agency helped me uh, secure a job. Um, and all I did was like just face the interview and then because they already had, as it appeared later, that they had connection with the warehouse company and I was hired there, you know. And I was laid off after six months because it was sort of a seasonal work. So they were... Uh, so when the Christmas was over, the company was almost, you know, shutting down. Um, and I immediately informed my employment manager at the resettlement agency that I had lost a job. And she again helped me find another job in a week's time. Uh, some of the paperwork that should have been done was assisted by the resettlement agency, either through a volunteer or by giving me a more clear direction as to what I should be doing, you know. Um, I was given instructions on so many things uh, because now I feel like they were making me learn things on my own. For instance, I set up my bank account on my own, but then a case manager who was assisting me with my initial resettlement was giving me a clear direction as to what I should be doing, you know. Hey, just go to this bank, it's like in a walking distance from you, tell them this thing and then they will open up your account. This is what, 
it's going to look like after you set up the account. So I was given so many instructions initially that I followed through that I see a differences now elsewhere that I, you know, work also with the resettlement agency that we do almost everything for the clients. Um, and how did you feel you were viewed and or treated by Americans during the resettlement process, you know, during your status as a refugee? Uh, I never felt otherwise, probably because I was living in New York City. It's more, you know, uh, uh, inclusive city than any other place. You get to see every kind of people there with several colors, with several backgrounds. I never felt um, that I was discriminated, um, you know, um, back then, but after I moved to Charlotte here and there, I mean, I feel like, you know, people are more biased. I've had some, some first-hand experiences, and then particularly with this new administration in place, um, uh, you know, part of my mind also tells me that I feel less belonging to uh, a nation that I call my home. Talking about your journey from New York to Charlotte present day, how long did you live in New York for? Did you go to any places after New York other than Charlotte? And when did you arrive in Charlotte? So I lived in New York City for a complete one year. And then I got married. So after I got married, I started thinking like, oh, no, maybe I shouldn't live here, you know, because it was extremely difficult for me to make a living there. Um I started calling my friends uh, around to see if they would offer me any kind of options. And one of my dear friends, uh, actually a friend, we have been friends for years. We were born together back in Bhutan. And in, even in the refugee camp, we were living close by each other. We, we studied together. So he was living in Raleigh. And he said, you know, he had just gotten married. They had two bedrooms. And then he's like, hey, you know, come here. And then we'll share another bedroom with you. Um, so I thought, like, that was one of, the, one of the coolest offers anybody could offer me at a time when I was broke, struggling financially. So then we decided to move to Char I mean Raleigh. And then we lived there for about a year because we didn't have anything in our pocket. We didn't have any savings. So this friend taught me how to drive, including that he also helped me buy a car. And then he, he was like, just return my money when you can. You know, you don't have to worry now. And after we have lived there for about a year, uh, another friend of mine was actually working at Carolina Refugee Resettlement Agency, my, my former supervisor who no longer works here. So one day I happened to give him a call sort of randomly, you know. And by then one of my other brother's family had actually arrived here in Charlotte. So I was like, hey, how is my brother doing? How is he adjusting locally there? You know, and he kind of was teasing with me, joking with me, saying like, hey, when are you going to move here in Charlotte? And I was like, find me a job and then I can I can move anytime, you know, you want. And it looks like there was an opening at that time as we were talking. And he's like, hey, but you know, guess what? There is an opening in my office. Maybe they will hire you. But then, 
you know, will you feel odd that I'll be your supervisor? And I said, no, I don't feel odd being anyone my supervisor. So then I applied for the job. Uh, and then the next day, somebody responded to me saying, like, when I was available to be interviewed, you know. And we set up an appointment for interview a couple of days later. I came here in Charlotte, drove here from Raleigh. My interview was done. And I was heading back to Raleigh. Somebody call, called me when I was about to reach Greensboro, offering me the job. And the next thing I, I told that person, that person also no longer works here. I told her, like, hey, I can actually return back from Greensboro now if you want me. And she's like, no, 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 just take your time, you know. Uh, and then a few days, I think the next day or the few days later, then I then I came all the way here in Charlotte, accepted the job. And, and when I came here, I initially didn't bring my wife with me because she had a job in Raleigh. And then I also want to get a feel of how the new job here at Carolina Refugee would look like, you know. And I stayed with my brother, brother's family, and and was was working at Carolina Refugee Resettlement Agency, and have been working since then in different capacities. So, hearing you talk about the family and friends that helped you during your journey through the resettlement process, and you know, even even beyond that, how important is having those familial and connections with friends and, and others in a similar community to aiding you in your daily life and, and through the resettlement process and beyond? I believe particularly in this country, it is extremely, extremely important. You know, I'll, I'll give you an example. So the friend who helped me uh, for about a year, he never asked a dime towards the share of his rent. I don't recall paying him anything. Because after we arrived in Raleigh, we, I think the country was still recovering from the economic recession. So we were struggling to find job in Raleigh. We didn't have job for about six months after we came there. And, and he never asked us for anything. You know, I was like, man, I, I know I will return your money someday. Maybe you should note it down somewhere. You know, he's like, no, 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 don't worry. We have job. We'll cover everything, you know. And 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 having those kind of backup support system in places, whether it's by your friends or... That's why uh, 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 in my earlier conversation, I was talking about a collective culture that we have brought here, you know. And me, after getting this job, staying at my brother's house for about a month without paying a dime or anything, you know, because it's the culture that I was raised. And then the same friend that I was talking about later uh, wanted to move to uh, Charlotte, you know. And this was, I believe, in 2014. So he moved to, moved here in, in, in Charlotte. He bought a, a, a nice house, and as he was transitioning, he stayed with me for two months, you know. And I'm like, no, don't care anything. You don't have to do anything, you know. Uh, and then later when he, when he was in need of some, some money uh, to buy his property, the house, uh, I, I loaned him some money and said, hey, just return when you can if you don't. I mean, that's basically it, you know. And then he returned my money after... I believe two years, you know. So it's that part of the culture uh, which which I believe is is really important because you have people 
you have resources, you have relatives to turn around when you need need help. And I I feel like you know someday if something were to happen, and I feel like I'm I'm economically in a bad shape, I can give quick calls to my friends, family members, and be like, hey, I'm coming there. Better clean a room, you know. And 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 that thing still works great in my community. I was wondering, what do you miss um, most about life in Bhutan or Nepal? I think one of the only things that I miss was we have had an experience both in Bhutan and in refugee camp of living as a clustered community, you know. So if I want to gather at least... 11, 12 people to go play soccer, it would take only five minutes. You know, be like, hey, if you call somebody else, he will respond, and then he will be like, hey, can you call the other other guy, you know, uh, X, Y, Z, and he would do that, and t- tell him to call that guy, and we'll meet in front of my house, and then we'll, we'll head play some game, you know. I, I miss that part. And I believe that's the only part that I that I miss the most, you know. Although I might I might miss a, a few things here and there, all the small things. But then being in group, you know, taking a walk as a group, trekking around as a group, uh, hanging around as a group, that that's the most important thing because it 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 makes people feel more belonging. Uh, to a group but here it's a completely different world you know if I have to gather like 12 friends then it will take like forever no one's schedule wouldn't match with the other you know next question is how do you think that your experience as a refugee has shaped you into the person you are today uh, I think it it plays a huge role um, I I do not want to thank anyone for making me refugees you know but for the fact that I became a refugee, I have a different way of interpreting how a life should look like. Because I have almost throughout my life had a had sort of a roller coaster ride, you know. Um, I'll give you an example. Well, when there was uh, a big news about hurricane, I think sometimes last year, People were panicking and be like, oh, there's a there's a huge hurricane coming in, you know. Uh, we don't get to drink water and this and that, everything. So I was joking with someone in my office and I'm like, will, because I've never been, I'm an experienced or seen one, you know. And all I remember saying was like, so what happens when a hurricane comes, you know. They were like, there will be a flooding. And I'm like, as long as there is a flood, I can make, I can make drinking water out of it. Um, and I was like, you don't need to panic with these things. You can't control it, you know? And, and people, I could see people panicking. Some of my neighbors here, you know, in the place that I live, uh, were loading trucks and trucks of water, the food. All I did was like, I made sure that I have enough food and water just for my three year old daughter. Because I was like, she was, she is growing in a different environment, you know? And I assured my wife that rest everything, we will handle it. As it comes, you know, I'm like, nope, I don't worry with anything. I don't panic with anything. Because even in worst case scenarios, I know some of the skills in life that I can turn some of the things into food or whatever it is just for the basic survival, you know. So 
I was wondering if today, does the U.S., the United States feel um, like home to you? And if so, do you remember a specific moment when it became home? I have too many moments where I could recall that it became home, particularly after, you know, I mean, the first thing was like, as soon my plane touched the ground in Newark, New Jersey, it felt like it was my new home. And then the next was when I became a naturalized citizen in 2014, I, I, the entire time when I was there at the USCIS office, uh, you know, trying to receive the naturalization certificate, I was, I was so emotional. I was crying. My, uh, my eyes couldn't stop tears from rolling down because I had that moment, I had that feeling that I, I belong here, you know. Um, I have had, had enough of those uh, feelings. But then uh, there came a strange uh, time when there was a presidential election that uh, I went shopping at, the, at a nearby Harris Theater. Uh, uh, a woman confronted me in the parking lot and said I shouldn't be going there. And this was literally two days prior to the election. She confronted me in the parking lot. She was like, hey, why do you come here? You shouldn't come shop here. And I was like, I just got into the car. I didn't want to pick up a fight. Uh, but I had a feeling like if this had been the case inside Harris Theater, I would stay my ground strong because there would be other people hearing to the conversation. But since it, it was in the parking lot, I was literally scared. And I was like, maybe I shouldn't pick a fight here, you know? And I thought maybe if I do that, what if she is armed, what she follows me, or what she calls somebody else, you know, I'm like, well, it is what it is. You know, I just got into the car and then, um, that moment, as soon as I got into my car, I locked the doors, I, I didn't leave immediately because I felt like, you know, my car could be a weapon, you know? And I'm like, my blood was boiling down from, from toe to my head. And I'm like, what? Really? Why would people think that, right? Um, so I have had every, every single moment of me feeling uh, belonging to this nation. And then the other, other times, uh, I think uh, several months ago, about a year ago, I was invited by the city of Charlotte, where they would, in a, each year, uh, in, in place of the USCIS, hosting a naturalized citizen, the city does that. And then I was invited there as a, as a keynote speaker, but I also not only had the opportunity to speak about my experience of becoming a naturalized citizen, but then I was also uh, put in a position where I was shaking hands of all of these naturalized new citizens, uh, you know, well, they were receiving their naturalized certificate. And I'm like, wow. You know, I'd, I'd never thought that I would, I, would be, I would be in that position as well. Um, so, you know, a couple of times here and there, I felt like I'm, I, I, I have this feeling like maybe I, I don't belong here. Uh, but I, in the meantime, I also think like I'm strong enough to, you know, stand my ground and say that, you know, this is also my home. Um, it seems like talking about that experience with the woman in the parking lot, that the 2016 presidential election was a real um, milestone maybe in, in, in 
an attitudinal shift towards refugees and how how they're viewed. Um, and speaking from experience as a refugee, former refugee yourself, but also someone who works with refugees, could you just briefly describe how how that attitude shift has been and, and what it's been towards? Well, personally, I don't think like uh, Trump being elected has to be given all the credit for the divisive, you know, divisiveness is going on in this country. I think a lot of people had that in their mind. But then when someone that someone aligning with their opinion was getting to one of the top office in the world, then their feeling kind of intensified. You know, they were more opening up. Um, and in the meantime, I also feel like uh, the only goal of the current president is to is to divide and rule. That's what it is called in politics. It's to divide people and then rule as many as you can. And in the meantime, if you can divide people enough to secure your office, then you have done a better job. I, I mean, I'm trying to interpret things politically here, you know. So, uh, and then I think after he got to the office, it sort of intensified uh, and it kind of encouraged more people, you know, to, to, to open up as to who they were throughout their life. Maybe people were not intending to talk about immigrants or refugees or they had all these feelings within themselves. But then when they have a president who uh, openly thinks what they were thinking internally, not openly, for their life, then I think it, it came as a burst out. Uh, but I don't, I don't, I'm not in a position to blame Trump entirely. So what about people who say that Trump is right? Right? So should we just blame Trump or should we also blame people or it's a combination of both? I believe it's a combination of both. It's Trump and then those people that, that backed him up. Not, not, not everyone, you know. I, I, have had a, I know a lot of Republican friends, uh, all born and raised here, who are very genuine people, who believe in the cause that we are fighting every day, you know. But they, never, they were sort of tricked in, you know, with, with some other promises that the Trump made. Could you just describe briefly the work that you do for CRA and what your job title is? Uh, currently, my currently I am actually in a hiatus position. I don't have a job title. <laughs> but then, uh, since 2015, I was working as the health promotion case manager. Um, and as as we as I'm talking in this interview, one of our other colleagues uh, has resigned, and then she'll be leaving this office um, in a few days. And I will be taking her position as preferred communities case manager, sort of temporarily until there is a new hire. But uh, in this office since 2015, I have had several roles, several responsibilities, and I'm sort of you know uh, that uh, what do they? Uh, there is a saying. It says master of all, jack of none, kind of kind of uh, stuff here. Um, I do a lot of 
public uh, events. I do a lot of outreach. I speak uh, extensively here in Charlotte and in South Carolina, share my personal story, talk about what Carolina Refugee Resettlement Agency does. And, you know, aside from that, I assist every every other individual staff whosoever need help with anything in this office except the accounting part because I hate, I hate accounting. So you, you talked a, a little bit about your family, and, and, and you don't have to mention names or anything, but um, just how many are your, in, in your um, immediate family? Oh, boy, I'll have to count them all, you know. So, I mean, just my family, it's me, my wife, and nearly four-year-old daughter. But almost every other family members live right here in Charlotte. One of my brothers who was living in Anchorage, Alaska, he recently moved here in Charlotte. He has two kids. One of my other brothers um, has two, five kids. One of my other brothers has two kids. No, four children. Uh, my one, my sister also lives here in Charlotte. She's married but does not have any kid. Two of my other sisters live in Ohio, and they have one of them has a daughter. One of them has four children. So it's all combined together. It's a huge, huge, huge family. And when we meet in some of our festivals, we get to we get to know that you know. So this is a question just about um, you and, and your wife and your daughter. What do you guys do for fun? What do you what do you like to do? Uh, mostly, you know, um, it's mostly me and my wife and daughter. We we are more kind of outdoor person. Every single minute that we don't need to spend in our family, we just get out. Whether we go for trekking, whether we go for um, you know, uh, a walk, whether we go for swim, uh, we, although we don't make a lot of money, we, we try to sneak out to get to, you know, spend a couple of days on vacation every here and there, because we always wanted to balance our life. You know, it's a, it's a hectic life here in this country and we don't just run behind money, but then we are running behind balancing a life. So every one of us could be happy. Um, we sometimes, you know, throw parties where we invite some of our friends, family members. Uh, yeah, I mean, we we enjoy being outside as much as 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 possible. And personally, I mean, I love reading books, so I spend most of my time in 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 my library if I need to be uh, confined within my house. Moving on to your your sort of thoughts. And we talked a little bit about attitudes towards refugees in the United States. And I was wondering, what is one thing that you wish people knew about refugees? Well, if there is one thing that people should know about refugees, it is this. Um, that all refugees do not have a place to call home. They have real fears and experiences uh, of being persecuted by their own government. And I strongly believe that what is happening to them should not be happening in anyone's homeland. In your experience, you know, as a, as a former refugee yourself and as well as working 
um, with refugees. How do refugees differ from other types of immigrants to the United States? So other types of immigrant groups, whether that be um, asylum seekers or, um, you know, just immigrants in general. So I think there is a huge difference between immigrant, regular immigrants and then refugees. Uh, refugees actually do not have a second choice. Whether to live in a refugee camp or be confined somewhere else, still taken care by the UN's refugee agency or being resettled somewhere else. But then immigrants have... Immigrants are people who come here uh, by their choice. So they can choose not to come here. They can choose to go to Germany. They can choose to go to the Netherlands, you know. And they could choose to live anywhere. But then when it comes to refugees, as I said, they have no any options. Whereas I believe immigrants have, have other options as well. I'm not saying every immigrant that come here were better off somewhere back home, you know, but all I'm saying is like it's a choice that they make. Uh, but when it comes to refugee, it's a choice. Uh, I mean, we don't have choice. And so um, last question here. I'm curious, talking about, you know, coming to the United States and the neat, unique um, perspective that you have on that. What do you think makes someone an American? That's a tough one. I think someone living here, uh, following through all the laws, you know, being abided by the laws, um, is standing ground on the on the very founding principles that our forefathers have, have framed. Uh, you know, enjoying all the freedom that they could. But then in the in the meantime, also thinking that there are tens and thousands and tens and thousands, millions of other people living elsewhere without food on the table. Uh, the, the freedom is a distant cry, you know. So also thinking about people not living here in the United States, but elsewhere, their future, their freedom, their security, whatever it is, you know, uh, having, having those kindness in, in, in us uh, will, what I think will make someone in, in, in America, not deviating from the very founding principles that we have. Uh, as a nation created by our forefathers back in the days. Takor, I want to thank you so much for um, giving your time to me. I know that you're very busy, and so um, thank you so much for sitting down with me and sharing your story. Um, I really appreciate it, and I know that um, the people who listen to this will also appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. You know, I, I'm glad I was able to able to share what I uh, what I experience and what I know uh, the facts are. Thank you so much for listening to Seeking Refuge. If you have a story you'd like to share, get in touch with us by sending us an email at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Seeking Refuge Podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
Special thanks to Takor Mishra for being on today's episode. Our show wouldn't be made possible without the wonderful support from Maxi International House at the University of South Carolina. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode.